Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for May 22nd, 2018. On today's episode, we'll discuss the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast are Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Y Trend Bowie. Hey, everyone. We have a packed uh, show today because we did the water cooler Monday. We have a lot of news, and I'm actually excited to have Jacob on talking about a lot of stories that he actually wrote. Uh, usually, Jacob is uh, kind of you know the puppet master behind the scenes uh, on Slash Home. Uh, you know, he used to write a lot, but uh, we actually got him today talking about uh, stuff he cares about, which is which is interesting. <laughs> the yeah. handful of things I care about enough. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's start out with HT, though. Let's talk about um, news that broke yesterday, and that is that Marvel and Sony's Spider-Man sequel has cast Jake Gyllenhaal in the role of Mysterio. And Michael Keaton's also coming back to HT. What do we know? So the sequel to Spider-Man Homecoming, which has, does not yet have a title, although I'm gunning for Spider-Man Prom, uh, has cast Jake Gyllenhaal as Mysterio. Mysterio is kind of one of the lesser known villains to Spider-Man. Uh, he hasn't had his sort of cinematic debut yet, but in the comics, he's a sort of stuntman, magician, kind of a who's who of strange um, Hollywood-centric uh, job titles, who is also skilled in hypnotism and uh, special effects. And he is, um, he often creates elaborate illusions that uh, messes with Spider-Man's mind and, and, and such. So he, this will be Jake Gyllenhaal's first time um, playing a super villain or superhero, although he's kind of brushed shoulders with the world uh, frequently throughout the years, uh, at one point being up for Batman in, Bat in uh, Dark Knight, or no, sorry, in Batman Begins, and uh, several other cases. But um, this will be not all, yeah, this will be his, uh, his sort of superhero debut. Um, it's it's interesting that they're bringing Mysterio into here because, um, you know, we, we have been told that this the Spider-Man series, each one will have 
uh, Peter Parker kind of bringing in someone from the MCU into his story. The first film brought in Tony Stark. Uh, I'm going to propose the idea that the sequel could maybe bring in Doctor Strange to help uh, Peter Parker deal with this guy that he thinks is has real magic but is just using practical effects. Uh, Jacob, is that insane? No, that's the exact thing I was going to suggest the moment you opened up the floor. I love the idea that Mysterio, being this fake magician who wears a cape, uh, maybe Spider-Man calls in the actual cape-wearing magician to help fight him. And I love this because my one of the favorite things about, about Marvel is the fact that Marvel versions of New York City, you have all these characters who shouldn't shouldn't exist in the same world, but they all exist in the melting pot of New York. So I love the idea of Spider-Man and Doctor Strange fighting a failed special effects artist, just because they're all in New York. And that, to me, is Marvel in a nutshell. And we also have word that Michael Keaton's coming back to reprise his role as Vulture. Uh, ben, are you excited to see Michael Keaton return? I thought Michael Keaton was a really great villain in Spider-Man Homecoming, so I am excited about that. I'm not entirely certain what sort of function that character will serve. You know, typically villains pop in and then they're dispatched at the end of the movie, and that really wasn't necessarily the case with uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. So it's like, what... Yeah, what function is this character going to serve and like how are, are they going to keep him around? And I mean, I think we saw was it a post credit scene of Homecoming that he essentially um, he he met up with Scorpion in a prison. Am I remembering that right? And he, he yes. like basically said that he was going to take care of Spider-Man himself or that was the implication that he wanted another shot at Spider-Man. So maybe he teams up with Mysterio and Michael Keaton and Jake Gyllenhaal teaming up is sort of an interesting uh, pairing <laughs> in my I, mind. I, that's really exciting to me. I wonder if Michael Keaton's um, Vulture will be masterminding this whole thing because I really liked his character too. And it would be an interesting way of teaming them up, especially when the Spider-Man sequels have often had a problem with too many villains. Mm-hmm. So it would be better, I think, for the story to just kind of combine them in one unit versus having a bunch of factors being thrown at Peter Parker. How embarrassing will it be for Sony if Marvel pulls off the Sinister Six after their years of failing to do so? <laughs> that, that would be so funny. Um, I, I almost wonder if if there's a way of making the Vulture kind of a confidant to uh, Peter Parker, like to have him like have to go to him in some way to for help. Uh, in well, I, I guess he already you know he already has Tony Stark kind of filling that kind of brotherly. Fatherly or role. Or does he? Or yeah. does he? Is that after Avengers Four, Tony's yeah, gonna die. Yeah, will he? There's, Tony there's Stark. No way Tony survives <laughs> Avengers Four, Peter. Yeah. But that's a that's a really fascinating idea too, because maybe you could have uh, like a Terminator Two scenario where Michael Keaton was the bad guy in Homecoming, but he ends up being on Spidey's side in the sequel, and it's both of them teaming up to take down uh, Mysterio in in whatever the Homecoming sequel is going to be called. Well, we will keep our eyes on this as we learn more. Uh, let's move on to Star Wars because we, we've got to move on to Star Wars. And there is a new article uh, basically explaining the behind-the-scenes clashes on Solo, Star Wars story. Uh, ben, you wrote this up for the site. What did we learn? Yeah, one of the things we learned was that uh, Solo, A Star Wars Story is the most expensive Star Wars movie ever made. Uh, this film, because of the costly 
reshoots and delays and and you guys know all about the troubled production but uh it ended up having a 250 million dollar budget which is a little bit more than the force awakens 245 million dollar budget which was previously the high the record holder in the star wars franchise so that's sort of an interesting tidbit um there are some i've gathered a a couple of the highlights from this article and you can read more about them at slashfilm.com but A couple that I wanted to bring up on the podcast and talk to you guys about was uh, I sort of assumed that when Ron Howard was brought on to replace Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the original directors on this movie, that he was chosen by uh, Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy essentially to enact her vision and sort of write the ship and just be a physical person who, you know, sort of like checks off the boxes that Kennedy wanted to, to sort of quote unquote fix this movie. And uh, it turns out that Ron Howard sort of thought that that was what he was being brought on for as well when he was first hired. But he, uh, has a quote in this variety piece he said i immediately realized that's not the way lucasfilm works kathy is really a director's producer and filmmaker friendly in that way and they were looking to me to make choices and creative decisions so you know on one hand like of course he would have to say something like that that's a very um but it makes uh, sense if you if you listen to ryan johnson or jj abrams talk about you know star wars like each of them came in and were able to do whatever they wanted to do on those films and they weren't really given any mandates of any kind Right. But those guys came in and and were able to lead their entire production from the beginning. Right. Like this is a a special scenario. I I just wondered if you guys had any thoughts about that. If you think that this is that there's real truth to Howard's description of this. Do do you think he was actually sort of uh, given this creative freedom by Kathy Kennedy? Or do you think he's just sort of covering the tracks of like um, and, and being diplomatic about it? I think there is a combination of the two here. I my belief, and this is just me sort of shouting into the wind, is that and it Kathy should be Kennedy said that you have film, not you have not seen the film yet. I have not seen Solo yet. Uh, is that I think that filmmakers who see eye to eye with Kathy Kennedy, like Ryan Johnson, people get along, who they instantly have a a, a agreeable scenario. I I think that that it's like yeah, go do your thing. But um, I think anybody who diverges from seeing eye to eye at all times it becomes sort of a it becomes an issue in, in this case like i have no doubt in my mind that ryan johnson had unlimited freedom on last jedi but i also believe that that's because kathleen candy agreed with everything he said so i'm um, yeah that's that would be my two cents i think the same thing with ron howard i think that um ron howard is an is an old school filmmaker at this point he has lots of connections to lucasfilm and i think that kathleen candy gained the benefit of the doubt i was happy to do it whereas phil lord and chris miller as talented as, as they are probably rubbed her the wrong way yeah, and there's one more thing I wanted to bring up uh, in this write-up, and it involved Lord and Miller and uh, somebody who was close to the production, I think who worked on the production all the way through under both Lord and Miller and Ron Howard, spoke to Variety under the condition of anonymity, and they said, uh, in their minds, Phil and Chris were hired to make a movie that was unexpected and would take a risk, not something that would just service the fans. They wanted it to be fresh, new, emotional, surprising, and unique. These guys looked at Han as a maverick, so they wanted to make a movie about a maverick, but at every turn, when they went to take a risk, it was was met with a no and i saw the movie at a press screening last night and i don't want to you know spend too much more time talking about this but i feel like the film would have really benefited from taking more risks in the storytelling and i that's why this whole situation is so complicated and difficult and it must have been really difficult for kennedy who is leading this huge ship and is is really trying to balance creative purity on one hand and 
uh, business acumen on the other hand and like the the brand management side of things. So yeah, I, I mean, I, Peter, you've seen the film. What yeah. do you think about what do you think about that? I mean, I do agree with you. This movie is uh, safe. I guess like it's not like anything like super duper surprising about it um, in terms of like how it is, um, you know, the tone or the the execution of it. Um, but I don't know, like, you know, we, we know that 70 percent of this movie theoretically is Ron Howard's movie. So that means 30 percent of this movie was shot under uh, Lord Miller. Right. Like, I don't feel any part of this movie is kind of like surprising and uh, whatever, you know, you just said that they were going for. And, and mm-hmm. theoretically, that would be in there somewhere, right? Like some of it. Somewhere. Right. Yeah. <laughs> theoretically, yes. Um, yeah. One more thing that I just thought was a, a fun little tidbit from this Variety cover story. And that is that Harrison Ford apparently loves Solo, a Star Wars story. Uh, he Ford is obviously like very famously a grumpy curmudgeon of a person. <laughs> and uh, especially when it comes to Star Wars, like he famously did not want to be involved in, in uh, the movies and, and sort of uh, Return of the Jedi in particular. He was not happy with the way that that film came out and he thought it was all you know, toys for kids and all this stuff. You guys have probably heard these these uh, comments from him over the years. But he uh, he called uh, Ron Howard after he saw the film for the first time, and he was glowing. <laughs> That's the description from Variety. I can't imagine Harrison Ford glowing ever. But uh, Ron Howard said, I had never heard Harrison effusive about anything, and he was raving about it. He said Alden nailed it. He really made it his own. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Harrison Ford stamp of approval for solo well, Star Wars story. I mean, we, we published a video from, I think, Entertainment Tonight where Harrison Ford showed up at the junket to surprise Alden, um, which I know was something set up, obviously. But mm-hmm. um, I don't think someone like Harrison Ford would show up, would take the time off, uh, head to Pasadena, which is probably nowhere near where he lives, to you know show up at a junket and do that appearance uh, if he didn't want to like you know there's no contractual uh thing with him like you know that that, that must have been he actually likes the movie but yeah uh, it sounds like it yeah uh let's move on to jurassic world fallen kingdom which had a premiere in spain last night uh jacob you were around and were able to round up the uh the first tweets that came in uh in spanish we have translated them poorly <laughs> and and uh, what what did people think of uh, the Jurassic World sequel? Uh, first of all, I want to give a big thanks to Slash Film Reader uh, Felipe uh, Dominguez, who uh, sent in some updated translations for us uh, after Google Translate and my largely forgotten high school Spanish failed me. So uh, thank you, Felipe. We really appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, these um, reactions come from a premiere screening in Madrid, Spain. And it's interesting to read them because they are mostly positive. They're very, very warm. And almost all of them are centered around uh, director J.A. Bayona, who is from Spain. So I feel like a lot of um, home country pride here. A lot of people who are really excited that a respected Spanish filmmaker is making a big Hollywood franchise movie like this. Uh, so I'll read a few of these. Um, they're all they're all very clearly from people who aren't critics. These are all clearly fans. So uh, I imagine we'll start seeing more negativity uh, or at least more um, rounded responses when the film gets closer. Uh, but some of them say uh, Jurassic World 2 is a continuation the saga deserves. Not only is it interesting, uh, um, but it is come is going to be, but is brutal. I'm sorry, I'm trying to read over my own bad translation. <laughs> he has done it, the best movie of a great saga. 
uh, incredible. Thank you very much to Abeona for this wonderful film. Amazing. Um, a slightly more, a slightly more negative one because also interesting. We'll see more of this kind of reaction. Is uh, it, it's a blockbuster, but it disappoints me as a Bayona film. It is very well put together, but offers few surprises. Uh, which honestly, the reaction I'm expecting to hear from a lot of people, which is uh, Jay Bone is a very talented filmmaker. His movie's going to look and sound amazing, but I'm curious to see if how much Bayona is in there and how much of it is more of just another Jurassic Park movie. Um, awesome, very different from the first, an incredible film. The film manager exceeds my expectations. Uh, so, like I said, there's a lot, you can read all these more at Slash Film, but it, it, the general reaction needs to be it's really, really good. Uh, but the more critical ones seem to say, yeah, but it's not a GA Bayona film in the way I wanted it to be. What do you think, Peter? Um, it's interesting because one person said it was the best of the saga. Is he talking about the Jurassic World saga or the Jurassic Park franchise as a whole? Because that, w- no that would be some strong words. Uh, because that first Jurassic Park film is you know, one of the best movies of all time in my mind. Some would say it's the only good Jurassic Park movie, Peter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, f- fair enough. I, I mean, I do think Jurassic World was the best Jurassic Park movie since Jurassic Park. Uh, if, um, you know, if, if this can beat out Jurassic World for that title, I, I think that's, um, I'm happy with that. Yeah, I think a low bar for second best of the series. Uh, is it, for me, it's a low bar because I, I'm very, very high at Jurassic Park. I love that movie, and I've, I haven't loved any of the sequels, even the Spielberg directed one. Uh, but if, if Fallen Kingdom is remotely a good movie, if it's a, if, if it's a genuinely good movie from beginning to end, it will be in that running, and I really hope for the best here. I think what excites me about this is, you know, these people saying it's so different than the the last one and where they're going with this franchise. And I really don't know where they're headed. That that's kind of exciting. Uh, but let's move on to uh, some some TV news. We've been talking about Apple's. Uh, they're, they're doing amazing stories. They've just hired uh, new showrunners. Uh, the Once Upon a Time guys that uh, also did Tron Legacy. Uh, HT, you're huge fan of uh, or a big fan of the first season of once upon a time uh t- tell us about this news yeah I, I don't know if huge fan is the right word for it but i am a fan of once upon a time and adam horowitz and edward kitsitz did make a really enjoyable fantasy series uh, which i think actually provided a really good playground for them to work as the showrunners for amazing stories so amazing stories um uh, to recap is going to be a remake off of Steven Spielberg's beloved sci-fi and fantasy anthology series from the late 80s. So this was a um, remake that was at first engineered by Brian Fuller, who first came onto the project in 2015, but recently left the project in 2017. Because he leaves um, all no, no, the projects he's on. Yeah, earlier this this year, actually, he he left earlier this year. Ah, uh, yes, and adding it to the many lists, the long list of uh, shows that he's he has departed early. So um, Adam Horowitz and Edward Kitsis will now be running it in his in his place. And um, yeah, I think this is a really promising duo. I think that even though Once Upon a Time's quality dropped dramatically after season one, uh, the first season was a really perfect self-contained story that if it had been kept as a miniseries would have been one of the great fantasy shows on TV. Unfortunately, it became kind of convoluted and a little bit weird. I mean, the good thing is that it did embrace its weirdness and it never balked at, you know, pitting Mulan against Merida from Brave, for example. <laughs> so it's it, it's a show that I think that like had so many weird co- twisted storylines and colorful characters, I think kind of um, makes them perfectly suited for amazing stories. 
Yeah, and that first season was great. It, it like they did a great job of reinventing the story, t- t- a story, uh, these fairy tales rather, uh, and connecting them in a way. And, all, and it was almost done in an like anthology type way, but there was you know obviously an overarching arc uh, connecting them. Um, you know these guys, you know with. <laughs> Once upon a time, it seems like in the in, in the subsequent seasons didn't have uh, a plan. It seems to me, <laughs> and uh, you know they're also from Lost, which I think people often give that show crap for not having a plan. Um, I don't know. I think this is a good place for them to be because uh, you know having a new s- story every week, every episode to tell, uh, maybe is a good thing for them because they are good storytellers. Yeah, agreed. I think that they are great storytellers. And Once Upon a Time really shined when it was focusing on those character-driven standalone episodes versus the long arcs, which often came to a really dissatisfying conclusion. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to the Fast and Furious franchise. Uh, There's uh, new news that Hobbs and Shaw will be a more grounded movie because uh, that's what people who like the Fast and Furious movies uh, want, right? Uh, Ben, what do we know? Yes, so David Leach, the director of Deadpool 2 and the upcoming Hobbs and Shaw, which is the first spinoff of the Fast and Furious movies, and it stars Dwayne Johnson and uh, Jason Statham's characters. Uh, He is is teasing a little bit uh, of what people can expect from this new spinoff. And yeah, he said that it's going to be a little bit more grounded, a little bit more character centric than what we've seen in the Fast and Furious movies so far. Um, He has a couple quotes here that I want to read. He says, we're diving into their world. I think we want to have our own take on the Fast universe. It will definitely have elements of the original DNA, but it is more drifting into Shaw's spy world and Dwayne's secret agent world. And obviously we want to build on their relationship, their conflict, their banter, that chemistry that they have between them. That's sort of what's driving the movie. So, I mean, obviously the banter worked out pretty well in The Fate of the Furious. If you put aside the whole justice for han thing which we've talked about a lot um but uh in terms of you know keeping this movie grounded like i, I think you were being sarcastic uh, yes. in in and that's what uh, chris evangelista who wrote this article was talking about you know he also had this sarcastic headline too because like clearly people who love the fast movies are not uh are not necessarily fans of grounded character-centric storytelling um i mean i do love the characters of those franchises or, or that franchise and i I do think that um, that there is something to be explored there, but I don't know if, you know, the Hobbs and Shaw movie is not necessarily the place to do it. I think that's the place for like uh, grounded and gritty action, maybe, but not necessarily like, um, uh, you know, I don't really care that much about these characters. <laughs> I just like them as a spice that's added into the ridiculous cauldron that is the Fast and Furious universe. It's weird because I always felt like Vin Diesel was the only one involved in this franchise that thought it was about the characters and about, um, you know, that attachment to this family. And I think most of the people, I don't know, I could be totally wrong, but at least, you know, my friends who are excited about this franchise are all in it because of the ridiculous over the top action that is totally not grounded in in any way. And I feel like once you take that out of it, then you get back to like, you know, the original fast and the furious movie, which, uh, I mean, it's okay, 
but it's right, you know, right. Yeah. yeah, it's fine. There's definitely like the magic comes when and and I I don't want to make it seem like I don't care about the characters in this franchise at all because I do think that there is a real beating heart to it and that family thing that you're sort of. Uh, talking about that Vin Diesel, uh, I think, puts a little bit, maybe a little bit too much value on. It, it actually is important, but I think that Paul Walker was really a big part of that, and now that he's gone, the whole series seems to have lost a little bit of a, a step there. Um, so I, the idea of, of trying to recapture a character-centric thing here, I just don't, I'm not sure if that's the approach, but this also could just be something that people say this early on in press interviews. You know, it, it's not necessarily like, a, uh, a directive I, I i'm waiting to see what we're gonna actually what the trailer is gonna look like before i make any full judgments about this movie for sure and uh you know we've been talking a lot recently about netflix you know they've been acquiring everything they've been you know they're making so much original content and uh you know they, they've been seen for a long time now as kind of a place where uh kind of auteur filmmakers and showrunners could go and make their art um, I mean, sure, we've we've also gotten things like Bright, um, but now uh, Michael Bay is coming to town, and he's going to be making a movie for Netflix starring Ryan Ryan Reynolds. Uh, Jacob, what do we know? You mean the greatest artist of all time is coming to Netflix? <laughs> Usurping Martin Scorsese is the finest director to ever make the jump to streaming. But by the way, <laughs> I, I would, after making that lead in, I would actually argue that Michael Bay is an auteur. Um, but oh, anyways. very much so. Yeah, I bet there are classes about Michael Bay's auteur auteurism. Yes, as as I say in the in my intro to this article on slashfilm.com, Michael Bay makes trash. He makes great trash. Like he makes truly great trash, which I, I love. But he also makes really bad trash. But all this trash bears a distinctive Michael Bay mark. It's all him. Only he can make his movies. And more importantly, he makes movies for the biggest, loudest screens possible. He makes blockbusters in the purest sense of the word. So the idea of him signing a deal with Netflix is really interesting. And the fact that Ryan Reynolds, who has a pick of everything in Hollywood after Deadpool 1 and 2, is also going with him. It's, it's a two-pronged message here. It is, one, Netflix is powerful enough to get Michael Bay and Ryan Reynolds to come make their next movie here. But secondly, since this movie, which is called Six Underground, is not a franchise movie or a sequel or uh, has or based on anything famous, uh, it's, it's a suggestion that maybe Netflix is the only place I wanted to make this movie, the only place that had an interest in a non-franchise action movie. I love the idea that Netflix is going to become the place to uh, actually be the place where filmmakers can go and create their original movies that, you know, the big Hollywood studios are not allowing them to make and, you know, franchi franchise-topia. Yeah, I mean, uh, Michael Bay, he got 13 hours and Pain and Gain made over the past few years, but they weren't box office hits. They were, they were almost like, yeah, you made Transformers movie, here's your little, here's go do your side thing, come back for Transformers 5. Uh, but now I feel like if Michael Bay wants to make another painting game, a movie on that level, you know, a mid-budget, weird, crazy thriller, he goes to Netflix now. And I feel like that's going to be a common thing going forward is the biggest, most expensive movies with numbers and titles go to the studios. But Michael Bay makes Six Underground at Netflix and Martin Scorsese makes The Irishman at Netflix. Um, by the way, uh, the article did not have a plot synopsis because in the press release did not say what it was about. But as we were recording, uh, Hollywood Reporter has released a plot of this movie, uh, Six Underground, starring Ryan Reynolds, which uh, is about a group of six billionaires who fake their deaths so they can form a black ops team to fight bad guys, which sounds 
terrible. And so it sounds like the, the exact wrong movie hmm. for the year 2018. I don't think audiences want to see billionaires um, like be glorified as action heroes, considering how a lot of people feel about economic disparity in the year 2018. What do you guys think? Yeah, this seems like a really terrible idea. Um, I, I know that the movie was described at one point as The Rock meets Suicide Squad, and I really like oh, The Rock, no. <laughs> but Suicide Squad seems like a a, a a red flag there. And yeah, like you're saying, Jacob, with the the uh, economic uncertainty in the nation right now and the, the disparity that's there, I'm, I mean, this just seems like a giant FU, doesn't it? <laughs> I don't know. We'll have to see what it actually is. It's hard to read into, you know, a small plot synopsis like that. I'm, I'm going to give it, uh, I don't know. <laughs> let's give it a chance, guys. Let's give it a chance. Uh, let's move on to, um, we were talking about The Expanse, which is this uh, hit, or not, I guess it's not that much of a hit, but a sci-fi series that a lot of fans loved that got canceled, and it's based on a book series. Uh, you know, fans have rallied, creating petitions, trying to convince the studios and networks to pick it up, and we might have uh, a savior. HD, tell us about it. Yeah, Amazon Studios is poised to rescue The Expanse after it was canceled by Sci-Fi uh, after three seasons. So this, uh, Amazon Studios, which uh, reportedly the CEO, Jeff Bezos, uh, absolutely loves The Expanse, is in talks to revive this show for season four. And uh, it will be the second show, or third show actually, this this um, season that has been saved after fan outcry. Well, second show because the other show that was saved was Last Man Standing over at Fox and there wasn't really any fan outcry as much as just a general shrug. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Expanse had fans rally around these shows after they were canceled and Brooklyn Nine-Nine was saved after a day and The Expanse was saved after 10 days of um, cancellation. So now the series will be coming over to Amazon which initially wanted to pick up um, the adaptation reportedly because uh, Bezos was such a big fan of the book upon which it was based by James S.A. Corey and he was kind of eyeing it as being Amazon's, one of Amazon's um, equivalent of Game of Thrones, essentially, in addition to the Lord of the Rings upcoming series that's taking place at Amazon as well. I kind of love that we live in the world that uh, our Lex Luthor, our rich billionaire Lex Luthor, is, you know, I mean, obviously he is trying probably to do evil and take over the world, <laughs> but at the same time, He's saving his favorite TV shows as well. <laughs> and I don't know, that, that kind of makes me happy. It humanizes him, you know? <laughs> um, let's move on to our last and final story. And this one's an interesting one. Uh, we've been talking about Damon Lindelof is doing a Watchmen HBO series, which uh, excited nobody because I think most Watchmen fans didn't want to see a Watchmen HBO series. Uh, but now... Lindelof has come out and written a extensive letter clarifying what he is actually making. Jacob, you wrote this up and have some opinions. What is going on? I do. Uh, Lindelof posted this five-page letter to his Instagram feed where he sort of lays out, he bears his soul about his intentions and about what he intends to do with Watchmen on television. And the letter is really interesting. If you're a Lindelof fan or a Watchmen fan, I recommend jaborslashfilm.com and reading it. Because it's it, it's an apology for making a Watchmen movie. It's an excuse for making a Watchmen movie. It's a defense of making a Watchmen. I'm sorry, TV series. A defense of making a Watchmen TV series. 
And it's frequently written in the form of um, the character of Dr. Manhattan, who you remember from the comic or from the movie adaptation, is a superhero who can experience all time at once. So letters jumping through time periods back when he was a kid, back 10 years ago, modern day. So it's a really ambitious way of trying to lay out everything and have a direct chat with the fans saying like here is my intention i understand you're a fan i understand why you're skeptical here's what we're doing and it's really interesting because it's uh lindelof has this complex relationship with social media he was driven off twitter after a lost finale and i like that he's self-deprecating or at least self-aware enough to be aware of the fact that people are divisive about him like i think he's great i think lost is great up until that ending but anyway i i, I digress the letter itself eventually gets the details about the show, and I'm going to read a few sentences here. Uh, we have no desire to adapt 12 issues Mr. Moore and Mr. Gibbons created 30 years ago. Those issues are sacred ground. It will not be will not retread, nor be recreated, nor reproduced, nor rebooted. They will, however, be remixed. He goes on to say that the events of the original comic and the original or the movie adaptation happened. All things that occurred um, are canon. They will be built into the texture of the show. But he goes on to say the show is not a sequel, it is a, but it is a follow-up set in the same world as Watchmen, but in the same way about how original comic, written by Alan Moore and uh, drama Dave Gibbons, was as much a superhero deconstruction as it, as it was a commentary on uh, life in 1985. It's, it's full of jabs at the political atmosphere. It's full of commentary on, this, on the fear of living during the Cold War. Uh, Lindelof says he wants to use that as a springboard. He wants to use the Watchmen universe as a way to explore how life feels now in the age of Trump, in the age of uh, whatever the hell we're in right now. And to me, this is such an interesting, great concept because uh, the Watchmen movie famously took decades to get made. Uh, Terry Gilliam tried to make it in the early 90s. I mean, it was even Robin Williams was like the front runner for Rorschach, if you believe all the stories from that time. Uh, but it was Gilliam eventually abandoned it, saying there's no way to adapt this into a movie. And in a way, Zack Snyder proved him wrong with his movie, uh, which I like. I like that movie just fine. I think it's a really interesting way of translating that comic rather than adapting it. But I also think it misses the soul. It misses the br- bruised and wounded heart, the the, the angry scowling of that comic, <laughs> which is that comic is not about superheroes fighting each other. It's not about looking cool. It's about being miserable and scared and realizing that even in a world full of superheroes, things are still screwed. Nothing, No one's safe. And everyone is terrified at all times in that comic. And I think that HBO is the right home for this kind of storytelling. I mean, The Leftovers, the last previous show he just finished, was all about the day-to-day painful existence of living and and being tormented uh, and dealing with grief. I mean, it was done through this sort of sci-fi fantasy prism. But I feel like this is the right guy, the right network, the right approach. I really like what I'm hearing here. I think his heart's in the right place. But I'm also a super fan of the comic, and I always felt like the movie was a bad choice. It was, it was a bad way to approach that material. What do you guys think? I, uh, it is... You know what? Uh, it I does sound like the right approach, but it, it does also, at the same time, he had to spend like one whole page of the letter explaining what it is and what it isn't. And as much as... You know, The Leftovers isn't a show for everybody. You can, you know, pitch The Leftovers in one sentence to someone. And I'm very concerned, like, you know, how do you pitch this to people who haven't read the book, haven't seen the movie? You know, it's it's very – this is, I think, the first time something like this has been done on this level. It's kind of confusing. H.T., do you have any thoughts? 
I think this is a smart approach for Lindelof because I think I I will say I was not a huge fan of Zack Snyder's uh, adaptation of the book uh, or the graphic novel rather just because it felt so suffocatingly loyal that it didn't feel like a movie in and of itself as much as it felt just like bringing to life several comic book panels of the graphic novel. So I feel like the exact opposite direction would be a really good way to approach the story just because it's people are very familiar with it. We know how much of a classic it is. And I think the best way to approach a classic is with a new twist. Um, yeah, I also agree that this is a really good take. I, I'm, I see where you're coming from, Peter, when you're talking about it being a little bit confusing because I think there was supposed to be, and Jacob, you might have even read this, there was supposed to be like a comic sequel to Watchmen. So it, did that ever come out? Is that a thing? Yeah, it's a few issues in. I'm not fond of it. I think Watchmen is so singular and perfect that trying to wrap it into the larger DC universe, even through like multiple universe BS, mm-hmm. doesn't work at yeah, all. Yeah, so maybe that's what he's talking about when he's saying it's not a sequel, like trying to, to sort of uh, draw the distinction that like we're not adapting that stuff either this is our whole separate thing it takes place in you know this same universe but it's it's essentially trying to capture the essence of the comic but updated for modern day and that seems like a really cool idea to me uh also lindelof mentions in his letter that he has surrounded himself with a writer's room that is not just a bunch of straight white guys so that is also a very fascinating notion to me is like what do uh, other people <laughs> uh, think about what Watchmen could be in the year 2019 or whenever this comes out, you know, like what what ideas and, and how are those going to be uh, translated in, you know, through these new characters and maybe some familiar characters? Um, I don't know. All, all of it just sounds very exciting to me. I'm, I'm I love the way that, as Jacob mentioned in his article, David Lindelof just constantly wears his heart on his sleeve. So um, I'm a big fan of his um uh, genuine approach to things and even as Lindelof says in his thing like if he's gonna basically I'm paraphrasing here but basically like he's gonna take a big swing and if he misses at least he took the swing and I think all of us can appreciate the fact that he took the swing instead of just playing it safe yeah and I, I'd highly recommend anybody listening to this that has any interest in a Watchmen TV series or doesn't have an interest in it. actually everybody listening should go read Damon Lindelof's letter which is like a really heartfelt uh, letter it's really long we have it in textform on slashfilm.com so if you don't want to read it in a bunch of Instagram you know small images on your phone you can you can find it on slashfilm.com as you can find all the stories we've talked about today and listed in the show notes. Uh, you can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to peter at slashfilm.com. And go rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>